for me, depression is not feeling pleasure in life. And anything that would normally make you feel good just doesn't make you feel good. And I actually lost the ability to feel, why are we on this planet? What are we doing here? And what's the point of being alive if we just come here and then we die? And it was around that time that I experienced my first depression. Just a trigger warning about gun violence here. There was a mass shooting at my school. and But she told me, you can decide what meaning it has and what meaning it has to you in your life. And then having anxiety or panic attacks, I had found the spiritual teacher I had needed and was calling in without realizing. And this man taught me meditation and it saved my life. I always thought that in a psych ward, you're kind of locked away, but I couldn't think anything. I was so drugged, ended up causing what they thought was a brain tumor. Then I was put into an outpatient rehab and dropped into a deep depression when I was just totally playing the victim or feeling victimized by life. So my mental and physical health just kind of spiral together. It's just so interesting because I look back and that was such a special time in my life in that there's always been this part of me that's able to be like, look for the magic, find the magic in life. I'm like, wait a second. I'm not behind. I spent those years understanding what it really means to live, understanding what it means to go from being just alive to living, to understanding what health really looks like on so many levels. I unlocked codes of life during that time that some people will never get to because they won't be in that same darkness and suffering. Welcome to our greatest performance. My name is Mackenzie Rose Gorman and I'm a coach, entrepreneur, creative, and advocate for holistic well-being. This podcast is your gateway to aligning with your purpose, tapping into ancient wisdom, and embodying your fullest potential. I'm extending the official invitation to step boldly into living your life as your greatest performance. Thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into today's greatness. Hey everyone, I just want to quickly drop a trigger warning for suicide and gun violence. If anything in that realm upsets you, this is maybe not the best episode to listen to. And also, if you're about to tune in here, um, this is the most raw and vulnerable and honest rendition of my story I think I've ever told. So I'm just sitting here in such vulnerability and also appreciation for the fact that I made it through this and I can openly share this and that, yes, there are components where I feel that there is stigma And there used to be a lot of shame, but in general, I share this episode in the hopes that even one person listen to it or see it and see themselves in me and see that they can get through it or that they learn something from my experience that helps them get through their own life's journey and just helps and supports them in some way. So that's the aim really in sharing this today and in leaning into my true authentic self, which includes my past. It's part of what brought me here. It's a huge part of what brought me here and what's made me me. It allows me to be really good at being myself now and being resilient and really lean so well and so much into what I do with a very truthful edge. So 
Here comes the episode. Hello and welcome back to our greatest performance. In this episode, I'm going to go into my life story, how I ended up here, how I became who I am, the things that I went through along the way, because I think it's really important for us to share our stories because it's one of the most impactful and intimate ways that we can connect with others. I really view perspective as a human superpower, as conscious human beings, the ability to think about something from another person's point of view is so important and special to the human experience. And so Yes, we learn a lot by going through what we go through and learning from it, but we also can learn so much by hearing other people's stories and gaining perspective and wisdom and learning how to do or not do certain things, how to act or not act, all of that. And so I am a very firm believer that storytelling is at the foundation of connection and deep relationships, and that every single person's story matters. I like to say that each story is like a thread woven into a tapestry that makes up the story of us. And the story of us is humanity, is the collective, is all of this universe, and each person's story matters. Each thread matters. And so today... I'm going to share my story, and it's probably going to go into more depth and detail than anywhere I've ever shared or spoken about it before beyond, you know, the living rooms of my best friends, because it is an intricate and intimate and complicated story, but it's very important to me to share it more and more with the world as I grow and expand and work to be more visible because of the fact that I want to help more people and I want other people to know what they are possible, what the possibilities are of what they can go through and that it's possible to heal and be more healthy than they ever thought possible in relationship to mental health, physical health, emotional health, and spiritual health. And so, yeah, let's get started. I was born actually on Thanksgiving, November 25th. I was a turkey baby. And I think that's important because I don't believe in coincidence at all. Team no coincidence. And being born on Thanksgiving in what I call a season of gratitude is very important to me because I think it's one of the only holidays we have in America where it's really about connection and about being grateful and thankful and about other people and really, you know, coming together over a meal with people that you love and just sharing time, quality time. It's not about these performative things like other holidays or getting gifts, all of that. So yeah, I was born on Thanksgiving. My mom gave up her Thanksgiving to birth me which is really nice of her. Also, she's Canadian, so they have a different Thanksgiving actually than America. But I was born Thanksgiving and 
You know how they say that kids, you know, just come out of the womb who they are? We talk a lot about nature versus nurture in both science and psychology, and both of those are at play in who someone is and becomes. But there's a large thread of who someone is that's just there from the the moment that they are born. And I think that that speaks to our spirit and who we are before any influence is already coded into us. And I think that we all have our own authentic code, which is the values we live by and have and the passions we have and the purpose we're put here for. And that never changes. That's coded into us in the same way you can put code, you know, into software, into a computer. And from the beginning, I was really adventurous and curious and interested in things and loved to have conversations even when I was like two years old. And I love nature and I was very nurturing and I loved being a big sister. I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. And that was my favorite thing ever when I was little. Besides like the first day when she came home from the hospital and I told my parents that they should take her back. But yeah, I think I grew up very much being me and knowing who I was. And as I went into being school aged, loved school. I loved to learn and I was really good at it. Like learning came naturally and easily to me. And because I was so interested and inquisitive and curious, it was just one of those things where it fed itself, where I was doing really well in school and I was loving it. And it was a huge part of my personality. I was a big nerd growing up, big fat nerd. Uh, And I loved it. That felt amazing to me. I also was really into sports and athletics and grew up playing soccer and started that really young, like around four or five. I was on my first track team at four or five and did those all through the end of high school. I also ran cross country and I swam. By the time I finished high school, I yeah, was a three sport varsity athlete. I graduated with a 4.3 GPA and I was very right brain with left brain. So like I had the academics thing going for me. I had the athletics thing going for me. I was also super artistic and really good at art and loved art. And that was amazing. But around seventh grade, I would say things shifted a little bit. Whereas before in my life, I think I was very much marching to the beat of my own drum. And I was okay with being, you know, nerdy and all of that. And really into athletics. And I look back on like bullying that happened to me in elementary school and in middle school. And I feel like when I was younger, I just didn't let it bother me that much because I knew who I was and I liked who I was. And I just didn't have a lot of respect for the people that weren't kind to me. I just kind of felt like they were immature or I don't know, like their opinions didn't hold a lot of weight to me, which I think was great because kids can be ruthless. But I started experiencing different childhood trauma through the end of my elementary school years and into middle school. And this shift happened where I felt like I went to middle school and all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't playing the same game that everyone else was playing. Like I was so, I still am, but I was so earnest and 
almost like had this seriousness about life and what I wanted to do with my life and what I wanted to study in school. And then I got to middle school and I felt like everyone was playing this game that no one had taught me the rules how to play. And I just came to see all of a sudden how catty people were and how people lied about other people or talked shit about them behind their backs. I just came to really see and realize that there were so many complexities in social interaction that I, I guess I had been sheltered from before because I was friends with other really smart kind of nerdy girls or, you know, my friends on my soccer teams. And so that was a big shift for me. When I was six years old, I decided I wanted to become a biologist. I have it written down in all of these journals and stuff that my mom loves to dig up and show me. But yeah, I was I was young. I was five or six when I decided I wanted to be a biologist. And I ended up going to UCSB and studying biology. I, yeah, when I applied to colleges, I applied to 13 colleges, all for different types of biology. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I liked. And I went for it. And that, I think, speaks kind of to just who, who I am and me having a strong awareness of the things that light me up and that matter to me and interest me. Because in hindsight, I've learned throughout my life that it's really the things that cause a feeling of excitement within us that are signs that we are supposed to do something or follow something. So I felt that very early on. And I think I just experienced a lot of magic in relationship to nature. And so the idea of studying nature and studying biology and how life worked was so interesting to me. And as you probably know, you know, kids are tapped in when we're younger. From zero to seven, we're in a different brainwave state than from seven or eight onward. We're in this theta brainwave state. And that is essentially the state of being in like a dream or being in hypnosis. You're a sponge during that time. It's the time when we are basically giving a ton of our subconscious programming because we are we are sponging up everything that's going on around us, which is why we end up with this conditioning and programming like the adults that we grew up around, our parents, people in school, teachers, et cetera, because we're being programmed when we're little. And it's also a time or being in theta, which you can later access as an adult through meditation and other kinds of ways to get into that state. You are in it technically for a little bit every day as you go into sleep and out of sleep. But in that state, life feels magical because you're living in basically this big real life imaginative bubble. Like when kids are little and they're playing make-believe, it's real to them. And that's why. And so for me, when I was little, I was really, really, really tapped into that magical thread of life. And I was really connected to, now I want to say to spirit. I was really connected to the metaphysical. I was really connected to nature. Something like finding a bird's nest with little eggs in it to me was a big deal. And I have certain memories of specifically like this nest I found on this walk that my family would go on. And I 
was obsessed. And I would go out and visit it on my own without my parents because I wanted to go to go basically study it and observe it. And like I felt this connection to nature so strongly. And I would do things like try to record bird whistles or like bird song in my notebook to recreate it. And just all this stuff. I, yeah, I had this strong, strong connection and I experienced life as so beautiful. And then by the time I got to middle school, there was this shift that started happening. And a few things I think impacted my state during this time. And one of them was the the trauma that I was going through, like stuff at home that was going on. And then, like I said, the social component and kind of like these pressures and what I was experiencing kind of through my peers and feeling like, whoa, like this life is not as pure as I thought it was. And I'm behind, like, I don't understand social hierarchy and like structure. And I feel like I need to, and I don't, I don't feel like I play the games that these people are playing. And like, maybe I need to learn how to play them. And yeah. And I was just thinking a lot still about life when I was, my mom says I was like five, five or six. I remember it from like six or seven to like nine. I started really, really deeply thinking about what the meaning of life was. Why are we on this planet? What are we doing here? And what's the point of being alive if we just come here and then we die? And what was happening specifically was I was identifying that when I was quiet, there was still a me in my head. Like there was still a, a, someone thinking thoughts. And I thought that was me. In hindsight, like now I can look back and realize that, you know, I was aware of my consciousness, the witness, and then my, the, the mind, like I was basically identifying that they had, there's like kind of like this monkey mind, this, this thought, thought creation that goes on in your head. And then there's our consciousness, our awareness, the witness that witnesses our thoughts. And that's the real true us. So I was identifying with this super early. I was super young. And then I was thinking, you know, what happens when we die? (laughs) Where do I go? Like that, that invisible part of me, the part that's not attached to my body. Where does that go when I die? What happens to me? What happens to us? And I mean, even still to this day, if I think about that really hard, you know, like it can be kind of send you into an existential spiral. It can because it is very confusing and interesting thing. Like, what are we doing here? And so I'd ask my mom and I don't think she really had an answer for me because there isn't a concrete answer. Right. And I remember in third grade, we had to record a question for our parents, like on a video camera where when they came in for open house, they would be shown the video and each of the kids like would be asking their parent a question. And there was questions like, you know, why is Kobe so good at basketball and can I have cupcakes for my birthday next week and like how is a rainbow made and I marched in front of that camera and I looked down the lens and I said what is the meaning of life and I think my mom was like what the fuck you know and it 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 concerned me and sent me to such an existential angst anxiety spiral that I really couldn't talk about it like I couldn't talk about death because it 
it made me feel so kind of like inwardly stressed, I guess. Yeah. And so when I got to seventh and eighth grade, I had a locker that I decorated and I had some photos inside of it of like me and my friends and a couple photos I had taken. I started doing, you know, taking, having my own camera when I was younger and like loving photography. And then I had this photo, this quote that I had found on Instagram. No, Instagram didn't exist. I found a photo of a quote that I had found on Pinterest. It was a C.S. Lewis quote, and it said, you are not a body with a soul. You have a body. You are a soul. And to me, that kind of quelled a little bit of my anxiety about like, okay, what is this life about? And I was like, okay, like I have a soul. I am separate from my body. Like that, that makes sense. Like that's what I was recognizing from when I was younger. And that helped me. But yeah, like I was saying at the same time, like there was just all of this different stuff going on. My, my emotional state and I would say my spiritual state started to be impacted. And I went from this very like in spiritually intelligent tapped in little girl to more trying to fit in and be loved and be liked. And it was around that time that I experienced my first depression. And I didn't know I had depression actually until my late teenage years. And so it's through a combination of things that I was able to really realize that I had depression so young, partially through the help of professionals, of psychologists and psychiatrists. I also started keeping a journal in fifth grade. So I have journals from now I'm 30. So from when I was 11 to when I'm 30, I have over two decades of my life almost like completely chronicled and journaling. And so I can look back and actually look at the periods when I was in depression in a depressive episode, which is super interesting. And I also exhibited signs and symptoms of adolescent depression, which I can go through in another episode. But yeah, so it started then. And then I didn't know what it was and it continued through high school and I just thought I was kind of bad at life. Like even though I got really good grades and I was good at sports and all of that, I just thought I was kind of like bad at life. And sometimes I would go through these like unlucky bad spells where on paper it looked like everything was going well, but really everything felt horrible inside and I felt like everything was going wrong and nothing felt good. But I think the conversation about mental health has changed so much over the years. And I didn't understand depression. I really didn't because I thought being depressed meant that you were sad. And I wasn't sad. I would say I was apathetic in some ways, maybe numb, quite numb in other ways. Like I didn't feel a lot of emotions. I think I was very muted emotionally. I was really irritable, annoyed very easily, which is a sign of adolescent depression beyond like normal teenage amounts. Yeah, I just wasn't sad. So I didn't think it was depression. And I was also really high performing. So I just didn't think that that's what it was. Like it didn't really cross my mind. And yeah. And then when I first smoked weed, it was interesting because all of a sudden, especially in my end of junior year, going into senior year of high school, I felt like weed made me better able to do life. 
And I almost feel like it being high created this like protective blanket over me where I felt like I could interact with the world a little bit better. I think in hindsight, it's because I was just so sensitive energetically and I was closing myself off and like trying to protect myself in so many ways. And when I smoked weed, it felt like I had this, yeah, ability to just, you know, be a little bit more like social and not be annoyed by people. And also just, I felt, I felt different. And it's interesting because, you know, most people would get high and like, I don't know what they people would do, sit on the couch, do nothing. And I became this person where I would be high, but be able to do anything and everything, you know, like I was high taking my AP calculus tests or my AP physics tests and playing sports and socializing and doing whatever. And yeah, so I was playing competitive sports all these years. I played on a travel club soccer team. I wanted to play for college. Era was thinking about playing in college. And my best friends were basically in my classes with me and then on my soccer teams with me. And I had a good group of friends in many ways. And then in other ways, like I just felt very alone and I felt very other and I felt very different. And that was a theme throughout a lot of my life. And yeah, by the time I was around 17, 18, I started experiencing a lot more anxiety. And that for me was easier to pinpoint, I think, than depression because like I was having anxiety attacks. So I could feel it in my body and I would feel like I was, I don't know, dying. And so I ended up being brought to the doctor and I was put on medication. And I don't really remember really any conversation about things beyond that, like how I was feeling. I don't remember if anyone asked me about depression or anything like that. I don't remember it. They might have, but it doesn't stick out to me in my memory. But essentially, I was, by the time I was 18, I was on pharmaceuticals for anxiety. I was on Lexapro, which is an SSRI. And I was also prescribed Xanax for the anxiety attacks. And I was smoking a ton of weed and I'd started drinking and I was drinking to be fucked up. I wasn't like really drinking because I even liked alcohol. I just, I think I was in a lot of internal pain by that time and I didn't know how to deal with it. And so those were the ways that I started dealing with it. And... Yeah. So by the time I got to college, like a few things had happened where I, what had happened? I got, I got kicked off my high school soccer team for having weed on me. I wasn't high when I got caught, but I had a little bit of weed in the bottom of a small baggie that was in my car and I got in trouble and I got kicked off my soccer team my senior year of high school, which was a really big deal. I was a senior and a starter and applying to colleges and all this stuff. And that really affected me, affected my psyche. It was extremely heartbreaking and disappointing and all of these things. And it sent me into more depression and going from being like a athlete training really hard basically my whole life being very fit and very healthy 
to then stopping and becoming depressed at the same time and losing my appetite. I became really, I was already, you know, fit and thin, but I was, I got skinnier and yeah, my mental health sucked. I could barely get out of bed. I had to get out of bed to take my sister to school and we were late like every single day because I could not get out of bed, but then I would have to. So I'd be up at like the last second and then I would often drop her off and then leave school. I wouldn't even go to school. I would just bring her. I ditched a ton, a ton, a ton of school. I graduated my senior year with over 200 something absences from classes and there's five classes in a day. So I missed over 40 something days of school in my senior year and still graduated with a 4.3, which, yeah, it was just kind of a shit show, honestly. And then I started getting pulled into the office at school, one, for having an eating disorder. And then the second one, the second reason that people were coming up with was that I had a drug issue. And yeah, I was smoking weed, but like I wasn't doing hard drugs, which is what they accused me of. And I just don't remember anyone like asking how I felt. And I was in this drug and alcohol class too. I don't know. I just... I don't know if that was just me and my awareness or if things have really changed about the the conversation about mental health these days. But back in like 2011, 2012, I guess, it was different. Yeah. So that was a really interesting time in my life because I think that is when this like large shift happened where I finally realized like the way I felt wasn't necessarily normal or healthy. But I also didn't know that it was not normal in that I figured out my coping mechanisms, which were get high and drink alcohol. And those helped me like kind of feel better. I had one best friend where we had an incredible, incredible relationship where it wasn't based on cattiness or fakeness or any kind of bullshit. And we had each other's back. And I just, yeah, it was just such an interesting time in life because I figured out how to make it work for me. And I think a common through line through a lot of my story is that, and I think a lot of people experience this, which is when you're in it, when you're deep in it, sometimes you can't fully see how bad it is. Or if you don't have a reference point, I don't know if you, if you listen to episode one, the episode before this, if you don't have a reference point of feeling good, it's hard to understand that you don't feel that good. So I use this example of like, if someone was talking about light with someone who had only lived in a dark room with candlelight, the person in the who's experienced candlelight you know, has an experience of what light is and what it does and how it illuminates. But they don't have the experience of like a lamp or of being outside in sunlight. It's completely different. So someone who's trying to explain sunlight to someone who's only experienced candlelight, like it's they're going to be having two different conversations because it's two completely different perspectives. And so because I had never felt that good, I don't think I understood that I was not feeling good, if that makes sense. And I had been in therapy off and on throughout my life. I went for the first time when I was 10 and my parents were divorcing and I went for a few years as a kid. And then I went a few times as for different reasons as a teenager for basically being difficult and in hindsight, super depressed. But yeah, so I'm in therapy when I end up in college. I'm so excited to go to college. I end up going to UC Santa Barbara studying biology, really 
you know, getting that manifestation of something that I set in motion when I was like five years old saying I wanted to become a biologist and it it tracked. Like I didn't do it just because I said I wanted to when I was little. Like it was something that I genuinely wanted to do. When I first looked into a microscope in seventh grade and saw the cell wall of a plant and saw the little chlorophyll, like chloroplasts, I guess, moving around in the like cell wall. I just, I remember a feeling of genuine awe. Like I actually am so connected still to how beautiful and magical our natural world is and our biology, including ourselves. I think it's so beautiful. And so, yeah, I went to UC Santa Barbara and I was um, studying biology, molecular, cellular, and developmental biology, and uh, studying writing. And I went because I knew I'd have the opportunity to do undergraduate research there because the graduate school was smaller, which meant more undergrad students would be able to have the opportunity to do like really high level, really cool research. And that was what really intrigued me and what I wanted to do at the time. So yeah, I ended up at UCSB, which Go Gauchos is one of the best schools in the world in so many ways. One, it's really high ranking academically. Two, it's a high ranking party school. And I don't say that because I'm like wanting to glorify partying, but I do think that there's this component of if you want to party, but your school is really hard, you have to learn how to juggle things and find balance in order to do both. Otherwise, you're just going to be like kicked out of school or, you know, fail your classes and stuff. So, yeah, I went to UCSB and I was still self-medicating and my coping mechanisms were weed and alcohol. And uh, yeah, I blacked out a lot when I was a freshman and I was a big, I, yeah, I partied a lot. I partied too hard. I didn't really understand my limit and that's a whole thing in and of itself. But that was kind of like my indoctrination into college. And I also realized I'd never like really learned how to study because I had been pretty great at school up until that point. So I actually had to figure out what that looked like in order to apply myself and get good grades. My sophomore year, I had a better year, I think. I look back on my mental health during this time, and I'm not sure exactly how to describe it, because I fell in love during this time for the first time. And I'm like, could I have been really depressed and and still fall in love? You know, I think there's a protective quality to love where it's possible through anything and everything, which is really beautiful. And I think that experience helped me so much. But also, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I skipped a lot of class. I don't know. It's just interesting to think about. But it was a good time in my life. My sophomore year was a great was a great year. It really was. And I think I'd come out of a depressive slump that I had been in my freshman year. And yeah, I look back in my journals and I can see it though. Like I can see when they come and go. So I know it was happening, but overall it was good. And then something happened in May of 2014, which freaking rocked my world, which was just a trigger warning about gun violence here. There was a mass shooting at my school and 
UCSB in Isla Vista, which is the neighborhood all the students lived in directly attached next to the campus. And six students were killed. And one of them was my friend Chris, who I had gone to middle school and high school and then college with. And very few people from slow high went to UCSB. And Chris and I weren't best friends or anything like that. We had been in a lot of classes together from 7th, 8th, and then 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. English classes and then Latin classes in high school is a small group of us that took Latin. And then having someone from SLO on campus was really nice. And I loved running into him. And it was just like, I would describe him as just like a a pillar in my life, or maybe not a pillar, but like a constant in my life. And so when the shooting happened, that's not a way that you could ever expect someone to be taken out of your life. Someone that had just been there forever was suddenly gone. And in such a violent way, in such a intense, dramatic, like just insane way was really difficult. And I felt like this rug of safety or like I had some kind of understanding somewhat about how the world worked. I felt like this rug was completely pulled from under my feet. And what resurfaced for me were these same existential questions that I had when I was a kid, which is what, what is this life? Like, how does this work? What are we doing here? And I was a mess. Yeah, I was a mess. I also found out I had gotten cheated on the same the day after the shooting. And so I just felt like my life kind of crumbled during this time. And I was not sleeping and crying constantly and had a really hard time. I think I had to not I not take some of my finals. I can't remember if I dropped classes or I think they just excused me from doing like the last few weeks of school because I like couldn't cope. I had a panic attack at the school-wide funeral that they held for the victims and like had to think take a Xanax and like, like it was just not good. I was up all night crying and in hindsight, I have a therapist who said like I was properly processing, like it was a that was a normal reaction to have. But the issue is that like two weeks later, I was set to go to study abroad in New Zealand for six months. And everyone always talks, or in my life at least, I talked about going abroad as like being one of the best times in your life, like the coolest thing ever, and been something I'd literally wanted to do since I was young, like maybe first grade you know, I'd look forward to it. And I was going to New Zealand. I thought it was so cool. I was so excited. And so I went from this like deep grief process of like really feeling my emotions and all of that to going to New Zealand and kind of bottling it up in a way, because it was a time when I wanted to make friends and have fun and fit in. And I almost didn't get to go actually to New Zealand because I had this therapist, a male therapist, who said that I was too emotional too, which made me also really upset and emotional because I was like, you know, this is something I've been planning for years. This is something I want to do. Like, I don't think you should get to make this decision for me. Like, that seems unfair. And I'm emotional because a lot of horrible things are happening right now. So I think it's like a normal human response basically what I told him. And so we came to a compromise that I could go to New Zealand 
if I went to therapy while I was there. And up until this point, I had actually been diagnosed already with depression by a different doctor, but I actually thought that she was wrong and I didn't listen to her. I didn't believe her, which is so funny in hindsight, but I genuinely was like, well, that doctor is an idiot, you know, because this whole time I thought depression was being sad and I didn't think that you could be a high performer and make good grades and like, you know, do X, Y, Z, you know, have accomplishments if you were depressed. Like I just didn't, I truly genuinely didn't understand. So yeah, I had ignored her. She had prescribed me to go back onto medication and I ignored it. In the past when I had been prescribed that SSRI, it hadn't worked. So basically I had gone back to the doctor they had upped the dose and then I would leave and see how I'd feel over the next few weeks and nothing would change. And I would still feel extremely anxious and I was still having anxiety attacks and stuff. And I would go back and they would up the dose and nothing would change. And eventually, like, I just lied and said I felt better, even though I didn't, because I didn't know why the medication wasn't working. So in addition to me not believing that next doctor that I had depression, I also was like, well, the medication's not going to do anything. So what's the point taking that? And so by the time I got to New Zealand, I was on therapist. I couldn't even tell you at this point. And yeah, I was not doing well. All of the students all stayed together in student housing on campus. I was at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, and I decided to go live in the suburbs in a family's, in like a unit of a family's home like probably an hour away from school, like an hour long bus ride. I totally self-isolated, which is my pattern when I'm not feeling well, when I'm in deep depression. And I just couldn't be around people. One of my symptoms of depression that I think people don't realize, but I see a lot in others is irritability. Extreme irritability with others is not a sign of a happy, balanced, well-adjusted person. And so I just could not stand being around people. And then also when I was drinking, I was drinking way, way, way to excess. And I was blacking out and I was blacking back in. And I would be like in someone's arms crying and like asking like, how could he die? You know, talking about Chris or talking about, I don't know. It was just like a mess. I was a mess. And so I was in this home in the suburbs of Auckland. And I had boxes and boxes of wine in my room and I was getting really drunk every day, every night. I somehow found a connection to weed and I was smoking weed. And then the other thing I was doing was I started going to the library like right away and I was checking out every book I could find on religion and spirituality because I was back in that like existential state of questioning everything and seeking, needing to know what is this life about? How does this work? If there's a God, how could something like this happen? Like, I don't get it. And I figured there had to be some kind of common thread within the religions and spiritualities and spiritual ideologies and such of the world. So I was checking out books on Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and all this kind of stuff. And I was looking for answers, basically. I was looking to understand because I didn't understand and I felt lost and I felt 
broken and I felt confused and I felt disappointed by life. And I was just like, I don't, I don't get it. Like I, I need to understand why we're here and I need to understand if there's a God, how do things like this happen? And what even is God? Is God this guy in the sky? Like I learned when I was raised Catholic or what does God even mean? And at this same time, I decided I needed to meditate. I don't know why I decided this. No one told me. I think I just felt this nudge to go meditate. I felt like that would help me because I knew I needed help and I didn't know what to do. So I was like, okay, I'm going to meditate. I need to meditate. And I didn't know how to meditate. And I thought meditation meant being still and quiet, which it does in a way. But I thought it meant you had to completely still and quiet your mind. And then I was sitting there trying to meditate and still quiet my mind and my mind wouldn't shut the fuck up. I was like, God, I suck at this. Like, what am I doing wrong? I don't understand how to meditate. I'm really bad at it. I was beating myself up. I was probably ingesting substances while trying to be better at meditation. Like, I don't know what I was doing, but I know it wasn't working. And this is all within the first like few weeks of being in New Zealand and at school. And something that had happened, actually, I had a couple weeks in New Zealand before school started. And I had had this one really bad night. I was on a road trip for a week or so with this group of friends I had made who were all from the UC system and studying abroad. And I was a mess. You know, I was getting so drunk and all this stuff. You know, I probably wasn't pleasant to be around. I, I absolutely realized that and acknowledged that. But I had this one night when got drunk and blacked out and blacked in. I just remember crying and crying and crying, being like, why did this happen? And like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Like being so upset and then going to bed or being put to bed or whatever happened. And then in the morning I woke up and it was really, really early before anyone else was up. And we were in this really stunning like national park, no, no phone service or anything. And I decided to go for a walk. And I went out and it was like a freezing cold morning. I remember there still being like frosted dew and stuff outside on the blades of grass. And I kind of just feel like I had this moment of surrender. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to think about life. I don't understand life. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to move forward. And I felt like I just handed over like this question to the world of like, can you tell me? Can you help me? Can you help me understand? Can you give me a little bit of faith? Because I don't think I have any. And it sounds so simple now, but this thing that felt so profound happened, which was like, I was out walking and it was so still and it was so serene and it was so beautiful. And then this bird came and this second bird came and they were flying together. And there was something about watching them fly over this landscape and it was so poetic and so gentle and so there was just this quality to it that I simply cannot understand but it felt like it was a deeply spiritual moment for me in a time when I wouldn't say I was yet spiritual and I felt connected to something bigger than myself and it felt almost like a sign this is before I talked about signs in the universe like communicating with us like I didn't understand that concept or believe in it at all at that point and it felt like that it felt like a transcendent moment 
and I felt connected to Chris in a way I couldn't explain. And I ended up going walking back and I probably had walked a few miles and everyone was upset at me because I had left without like leaving a note or anything and I didn't have my phone and they didn't know what happened to me or if something had happened. And so I felt bad and I apologized, but like in, in kind of the back of my head or like in my heart, I was like, I just got connected to something bigger than myself. And I don't know if I had ever really experienced that before, at least as like an adult. I think that was kind of like the space I operated in when I was a kid, but I didn't, I didn't remember ever experiencing that as an older person. At this point, I was 20. And then I'm, you know, reading, I get home and I'm isolating and I'm reading all these books about religion and spirituality. And then I go to this fair and it's a fair for the clubs of the University of Auckland. And I join, I think, like the photography club. I join the scuba club. And then I meet this man. And I am immediately drawn to this man, not because of his outfit, but because of his energy. But his outfit was pretty great. He was in like a turban, orange turban, orange robes, just had the nicest face. And there was just something about him where I was like, I need to go talk to that man. And I went and talked to him and he was heading the meditation club. And I ended up joining and going and then I was going every Wednesday and that man's name was Dada Shruta and he was an Ananda Marga monk which is kind of like an offshoot of Hinduism in a way is how I want to describe it but it didn't really matter but really mattered was I had found the spiritual teacher I had needed and was calling in without realizing and this man taught me meditation and it saved my life. I learned meditation. I learned like transcendental meditation or meditation with a mantra, which ended up being my first tattoo ever, which I got a few months later. But the mantra for the meditation is Baba Nam Kevalam, which more strictly translated from Sanskrit Baba means beloved, Nam means name, and Kevlam means only. So the, tr the mantra can be translated as only the name of the beloved or only the name of God or basically only God exists. But a loose translation, which I resonated a lot with, was love is all there is because love is God, is the beloved. That's what I learned through through Dada Shruta and through what he taught me about non-dualism. And learning about non-dualism was kind of like this piece that I needed to put together the puzzle I had been constructing through reading all these books about religion and spirituality. It essentially says that there is no duality. There's no separation. There is an innate an essential unity between all things. And that for me kind of changed everything because if there's all just one thing, one awareness, one love, one consciousness, one God in me like that, that just made sense in a way that Christianity and Catholicism didn't make sense to me growing up. I grew up Catholic 
And I just, I don't think I really jived with it that much. And as a kid, you know, I'm not thinking that much about the Bible. I'm thinking more like these wooden pews are very painful to sit on for a long time. And like, I don't want to be here, like that kind of thing. And then so I started going to um, Bible study and church groups with uh, my neighbor who was at a like a Christian church. And we got to like play games and eat fun snacks. And it was a little bit different than the like Catholic experience. So I liked that. But I even remember at six years old, I got into a big argument with one of the leaders because I was confused because I essentially said to her, if God loves everything, if God made everything and loves everyone, then why is he sending specific people to burn in hell for all of eternity? Like, how does that work? You know, even at six, I recognize like there are some issues with this whole construction of this story. And I will go forward to say something that I loved that I learned through Dada Shruta and through non-dualism or non-duality is that basically the way that I think about it is that all gods lead to the same pinnacle, to the same God. So some people are going to identify more with Christ and some people are going to identify with Catholicism or with being a certain type of Christian. And that's the path that they take to get to God. Some people are going to identify more with Buddha and Buddhism is the path that they take to make their way to God. I think that like Christ and Buddha and all these other emanations of gods are actually just almost like facets of like what God truly is. And I view God as the ultimate like highest consciousness that exists, the highest vibration, the highest frequency. It's not an animated thing. It's not a person or like a he, she. It's like an, for me, it's almost like an it, but I think you can use he, she, it. I don't, I don't think it really matters how you pronoun God or universe or consciousness or awareness or love. What I think is how you live it, how you embody it and what your beliefs do in relationship to how you act in the world and who you be. So for me, if someone, if Jesus is their thing, then that's amazing. What I care about is not that they're a Christian. It's do you embody like the spirit of love? Same with Hinduism, same with Taoism, same with any spirituality. This is how I learned it. And this is kind of the foundation of my belief system, which obviously has since changed because this was the very beginning of my spiritual journey. This was 10 years ago or my, you know, official spiritual journey of like deep spiritual study. But I remember I walked up to Dada one day after our meditation and yoga and class. And I said, I'm confused about how all of this works, like how life works and like God, like what do you believe is God. What do you believe? Was basically what I asked him. And I remember he paused and he looks at me and we're standing next next to this big table. And he looks at me and he says, I am God. You are God. He knocks on the table. This is God. Everything is God. And I was like, whoa, what? Okay. And I was like, okay. And he continued and he said, you have the ocean and you can think of the ocean like 
God, like this consciousness. It's love. Love. God is love. And he said, if you take a drop out of the ocean and you put it back in, all you did was take a drop out of the ocean and put it back in. If you took a drop out of the ocean and separated away from the ocean, it just looks like a drop of water. But is that not still the ocean, even though it's separate from the large pool of the ocean? That drop is still the ocean. He's like, you are a drop out of that ocean. I am a drop out of that ocean. Everything that exists is a drop out of that ocean. Everything is God. And my brain exploded in the best way because what I had been trying to figure out almost my whole life suddenly was put into this frame of reference or this perspective where things just made sense a little bit more to me. I was like, okay. I can get behind that. Like I can use that as my foundation because that for the first time is something that I feel in my body feels like truth because our bodies are a gauge for truth. Light, when you hear people talk about like light and darkness and light and love, like light is truth. And we can detect when we are in truth and in the presence of truth and in the presence of love. And so for me, that was like, okay, that was this first thing where my, I had my first spiritual awakening and it was beautiful. And learning from him was so impactful for me and learning meditation and the beginnings of learning how to master my mind and to understand that I was not my thoughts, that thoughts were things that happened inside of me, that I was not them. And also that I had control over my thoughts and the things that I would think, and thus ho over how I would feel, that was revolutionary to me and completely changed my life. And so at the same time, going to this therapist, remember I told you I had to go to therapy in order to be able to go to New Zealand. And I'm seeing this therapist, and she gives me another key, another nugget. And I think I was basically spending a lot of time like really upset and asking her, why did this happen? And what she said to me was, it's not about asking why did this happen? Because you're never going to have the answer. We don't know why this happened. Maybe when you die, we'll figure out why this happened. Like, you know, answers will be revealed to us that we don't get in this human life. But right now you don't get to know the why. You just don't. But she told me, you can decide what meaning it has and what meaning it has to you in your life. She was like, you don't get to know why Chris died. You don't get to know why all these people died. And you didn't because I was actually close to the scene and I was actually going to kind of be in the crime scene. And I had this gut feeling that caused me to turn around when I was about to go into the path of the shooter. But that's for another story. But I was sitting in her office being like, why? And she was like, no, it's not about why, honey. It's about what does this now mean because it happened? Chris died. What does that now mean to you and how you are going to live your life? And that was another mind-bending moment for me because I didn't realize I could, I could make meaning from it. I thought I had to be given the explanation of, of it. And so I decided, well, it means I'm going to live my life fully. And I'm going to wake up every day to the best of my ability with gratitude and live a deep, full life because I'm actually given 
the ability to wake up in the morning. And Chris isn't. And those other people aren't. And that meant a lot to me. Like I said, my first tattoo was my meditation mantra in Sanskrit. My second tattoo was this this symbol right here, which is a meditator inside of a lotus blossom, which ended up being in Chris's memorial bench. Each of the victims was given a bench in Isla Vista. And I, I put that tattoo on my wrist. I put that tattoo on my wrist as a reminder to see every single day. It makes me emotional to see every single day that I woke up again. I woke up again. And that is biggest privilege of all. Because Chris didn't get to. Because these other people don't get to. Everyone that's not alive right now didn't get to wake up this morning. And you know what? I did. And if you're listening to this right now, you did. And no matter how life hurts or goes and feels bad or challenging, it's a gift to wake up every single day. It is. And to traverse this human life and to learn and grow and all that, it's a gift. So that was another nugget that this therapist gave me was I get to make meaning from his death. During this time, I was diagnosed again with depression. And this time I kind of believed it more, even though I told her, I was like, but I'm trying to not feel like this. I was like, I signed up for the gym and I'm eating healthier and stuff. Like, doesn't that mean I'm not depressed? Like, I just didn't get it. I did not get it. And she was like, no, <laughs> that doesn't mean you're not depressed, but it's good that you're trying. And I was diagnosed with PTSD. I couldn't really handle like anything with that was a loud noise or it sounded like gunshot-esque. Or if any cars like slowed down next to me, it would send me into like extreme fight or flight panic and I would sprint away. And yeah, so I was having my mental health stuff. I In depression, I always like have my appetite affected where I'm either getting really skinny or I'm gaining weight. And I at first got really skinny, but I think I was gaining weight from drinking so excessively. And yeah, I basically made it through New Zealand. I went back to school at UCSB during my junior year and I was deeply depressed. And I spent the vast majority of the remainder of my school year in bed. I didn't go to classes. I skipped almost all of my classes. I went when I knew I had to or it would cause me to fail, such as for a midterm or a final or a lab. Yeah, I don't think I was getting up to like eat very often. I had a really beautiful, kind, supportive partner who really helped me a lot during that time. When I was getting out of bed, it was often to party. Yeah, I was still struggling and I had learned meditation and I was trying to meditate. But at the same time, I was in a lot of like pain and suffering, I would say. Like it, it wasn't just like, oh, I got these answers. Oh, I learned about spirituality and I was better. No, it wasn't like that at all. I was not doing great. But by the end of the year, I think I started to feel better and feel a little healthier and lose the weight that I had gained. And things seemed like they were on the up and up. We had this really amazing summer that summer, 2015, where it was really warm, like really, really warm in the summer. And the ocean was really hot and it felt amazing. And I spent a lot of that summer like barefoot in like shorts and a sports bra. Like I actually think like most of junior year I was barefoot. I wasn't wearing shoes a lot. It's kind of like back in my hippie ways in a way. 
And yeah, a few things happened. I remember I got in a bad bike accident in July where I was in barely any clothes because it was really hot out and I wasn't wearing shoes and I was on a bike with someone and they crashed it. And in hindsight, I do wonder, I'll bring this up in a later episode, but I wonder if I I got a brain injury when I hit the asphalt from this bike incident because um, I blacked out or I lost consciousness. And then when I gained consciousness, then I was like, losing consciousness, coming back, losing consciousness, coming back. I don't know. I just think about that because in hindsight, I'll wrap this into like a later episode about, you know, mental health and the brain. And I have a lot to unpack there. But Dr. Amen looks at brain injuries and how that also affects like mental health and things like that. I just think it's very interesting to learn about those associations or correlations and things like that. Causations. Anyways, yeah, things were kind of on the up and up. And then in August of 20 I have a manic episode and I don't realize that I have a manic episode at first it is triggered from substance use and then I realize that I start to like sleep a little bit less and I just thought it was I don't know I kind of rationalized it like I was really tired so it was hard for me to sleep you know when you go through stuff sometimes and you your brain like comes up with rationale and reasoning for it that doesn't make sense in hindsight but when you're in it your brain's just trying to like do like pattern recognition and like make up a reason why something's happening and then long story short is I stopped sleeping and then I got to a point where like throughout this week in August I became very manic and I didn't know what mania was and I yeah, I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that I had like very elevated mood and I actually felt really good for the most part. When you're manic, you can actually feel great. And I felt like I was like life of the party and so funny and like all these things. And I also was experiencing like extreme anger when I was in like triggering situations and also a lot of anxiety. It was a very, very, really interesting, weird experience. And my mood was going up and up and up. And I was talking super, super fast and I'd feel really good. And then I'd feel really angry, like at the drop of the hat, the angriest I've ever felt in my life. And then having anxiety or panic attacks and shit's going down with my family and my mom's getting very concerned and, you know, a lot plays out. And eventually after like a week, I'm not sleeping. Right. And I'm not really able to eat at all. Like I'm just too amped, like eating, like I can barely put anything in my stomach. And I also thought I had an ulcer at this time. Like I will say like my gut health was not good. And I thought I was ill with like something physical. And then I'm like wanting to sleep because I'm starting to feel really, really agitated and not okay. And I can't sleep as I'd been trying, you know, to all week. But then my mom, who's a nurse, kind of said to me, you know, you're probably going to start hallucinating. That's what happens when you don't sleep after extended periods of time. And that scared me a lot. And I finally Googled mania and I Googled bipolar disorder. And as I looked through the symptoms, I realized like, okay, this kind of matches what I'm going through and what I've gone through with all this depression and stuff. And so, yeah, I finally went to my mom and I was like, I'm scared. 
and I don't know what to do. And I think this is what I have. I think you're right because I had been resisting. And so we flew home and I went to the hospital in California. We had been in Canada and they did a bunch of blood tests and things like that to make sure. I think they rule out that it's not your thyroid which can cause mood issues and things like that. And I received official diagnosis. And then the next day, I think for now, you know, like these details are kind of like personal and intimate to me and and I don't need to share the whole thing. But essentially, I was admitted to a psych ward against my will. And I was there for probably 24 hours. And... It was horrible. It was one of the most, if not the most traumatic experiences of my life. And I was very scared. And I was in there with very intense, agitated people who were having their own issues on a very large scale, as in the Contra Costa Hospital Hospital in the Bay Area, which I later learned from different like nurses and health professionals is like kind of like the most gnarly hospital in the Bay Area where you and especially in like the mental health department. And yeah, it was it was horrible. I always I think from like TV shows and stuff too, I always thought that like in a psych ward you're kind of like locked away. But I wanted to be locked away. I was put into this like basically open floor plan situation with everyone. And then the the staff got to be in like a safe area behind like screen like plaques and all this stuff. But I was just out with everyone and people, you know, people had stabbed themselves repeatedly or bleeding or screaming or peeing on the ground or seizing or like going ballistic. Like it was a lot. And I had never been somewhere where I couldn't leave before. Like I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to leave. I don't think very many people have actually experienced being brought somewhere and like you are actually not allowed to leave. You have no control over yourself and coming and going and it was yeah it was really intense it was horrible and essentially what ended up happening was after they let me out I was picked up by my then partner and brought back to Santa Barbara and I was in the middle of summer school and I just went right back to my life and I didn't really tell anyone what had happened I was really ashamed and I was kind of confused about what was happening to me just because I didn't understand what bipolar disorder was. And yeah, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel able to talk about it. And I didn't feel like I had the capacity to share and I didn't want to be vulnerable. And I felt like ashamed and broken and screwed up. And, you know, I was told that I basically had this like fucked up brain and I needed to immediately be put on medication and that I would be on medication for the rest of my life. And I had initially gotten medication, I think maybe a couple, that first day I went to the hospital when I got my diagnosis and I slept for the first time, probably just a couple hours, but for the first time in like a week, I was given like antipsychotics, which is what they give you to basically like cool down your brain when you're really up like that. And then when I was in the psych ward, I'm not sure if I would have been able to get out earlier or not, but essentially one of the issues was that they kept trying to make me eat these drugs. And I said, I don't want those. I don't know what you're giving me and I won't take it. 
And I refused to take it for a long time until eventually I had a huge breakdown and I went to one of the nurses and I was just bawling and bawling and bawling. And I was so scared. And I was so, I don't know if I can ever put to words exactly how it felt to be in there and what was going on in my head and how scared I was. And just like, yeah, it was, it was hard. But I said, how do I get out of here? I need to get out of here to her. Like very, I was like, I need to get out of here. Like I'm terrified and these people are fucking scaring me and I shouldn't be here. And she said, honey, you have to eat the medication that we're giving you. And I said, I don't want to. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what you're giving me. And you know, you don't have access to any of your possessions there. Like I couldn't Google it. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have anything. They don't give you anything in there. And you know, you had to ask to get water to drink. You had to ask for them to unlock the bathroom to go pee. Like it was horrible. And so I said, I need to get out of here. And she said, you have to eat the medication. Essentially the, the meds they gave me, like the only way I've only ever known how to describe it is it feels like they turn your brain into pure mush. Like your brain becomes not a brain anymore. It's like a bowl of oatmeal. And it's almost like you'd think a thought and in the middle of the thought, the word would get from like here to here and then it would just like disintegrate. I couldn't think anything. I was so drugged. I was so drugged. And so, yeah, just like my experience with medication was really interesting from the beginning because I was told, you know, your brain's fucked up. You need medication. You'll be on it for your whole life. If you don't take medication, you are an idiot and you will fuck your life up, basically. Excuse my language, but that's what they're saying. Like, if you don't do this, you're stupid and you're giving yourself a death sentence, basically, or a sentence to become like psychotic down the line because you're going to be so manic all the time, all of these things. And so I did what they told me. You know, I went back to Santa Barbara and I got a psychiatrist and I got a psychologist and I was put on medications and many. And we started trying out different ones for like a, a main medication. And I was having reactions to them that were like adverse reactions, like one where it felt like all the time bugs were crawling under my skin, like everywhere. Like, it, like you know, that feeling if you like feel a little like a bug crawling and you go down, you flick it and it's like a bug was crawling on you. It was that all the time under my skin, my whole body in my face is horrible. So I went through this whole process of trying to figure out what medications to take and all of that. And and I wasn't talking to anyone about it. And I'm getting like blood work done to like look at these different levels of medications in my blood. And I ended up one of the medications I asked them to take me off of that they wouldn't because they said I need to be on it longer ended up causing what they thought was a brain tumor, a pituitary tumor, and ended up my I didn't have a tumor on my pituitary, but my pituitary grew and then created like a cascade of other health issues and like side effects and it was just a terrible time. I went to one of my teachers during this time and asked if I could drop the class, I think, because it was past the date that you could drop. And he just said no. And I needed that class to be able to do my writing minor. And I ended up doing it. I was still manic for like another month, coming down slowly. And then I basically ended up being pulled out of school the beginning of my senior year and I was brought home and then I was put into an outpatient rehab and dropped into a deep depression. And when you're up really high in mania, especially for like that extended period of time, like that's really hard on your brain. And what happens after is you drop into depression. And so, yeah, I got 
pulled out of school, ended up not being able to do all the classes I needed to do for my writing minor. I was doing bio, really cool bioengineering research in a mechanical engineering lab at school, and I got dropped from the lab because I wouldn't be there to do the research. I didn't tell people, like my, most of my friends, really where I was going, what was going on. I dropped out of the sorority that I was in, and I went home, and I was miserable. And just for the sake of speeding this story along, that started off a many-year process of or spiral of just really, really losing my mental health and my physical health in a way that I hadn't experienced before, even though I had experienced so much mental health stuff up until that point with the depression and anxiety in adolescence and then in my teenage years, then going into college. Like this just made it a new chapter. It was a new, a new monster. It was just different. It was really, really, really deep, dense, dark depression. I didn't have the distractions of being at school. I didn't have, I don't know. I don't remember this time very well. When you are in states like mania or like a very severe depression, your brain doesn't store memories in the same kind of way. And I can't really talk to you about like what exactly I was doing or what was going on, but I can tell you that I was absolutely miserable. And I ended up going back to school after like that rehab, which was essentially to learn how to live with a broken brain. And I went back to school. Finishing school is extremely hard. I really struggled. Like I just felt like my brain wasn't functioning at full capacity. And I was doing my kind of like self-isolation habits from people that I do when I'm depressed. And I also had on what I call like depression goggles. So like everything felt negative. I felt like the world was against me. I felt like my friends were against me. I didn't think that they were like being nice to me. I just, just things just spiraled and it was a really hard time, which is supposed to be, you know, one of the most fun times of your life, like senior year of college, like what a ball. And it wasn't a ball for me. And I ended up walking for graduation and then I had a few more months to go after that and then I was getting skinnier 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 more and more depressed or maybe not more and more but continuing depression I actually had straight depression from let's see August 20 until June 2016 and then I had like a couple days where I actually felt better and I was like holy shit this is amazing and then I felt my mood start to elevate again and maybe that was just me going towards normal but at that point I had been so scared by all of these doctors and professionals that like if I didn't manage my brain correctly and if I was like you know experiencing a lot of mania like it would get worse and worse and worse and I would cause brain damage and all this stuff so I told my doctor how I was feeling they put me on more medication and then I drop into a depression again and so I'm most of my friends move away. I'm depressed. I'm babysitting, nannying. I'm working a sales recruiting job. I'm finishing school. I'm doing a writing internship. Like I'm still getting shit done, so to speak. I'm just having a really hard time. And I think I was just telling myself that things were okay when I knew that they were like, I knew that they weren't and they weren't. And I don't think I was like, I think I was just trying to get through at that point. And I'm just so excited to finally finish up school because I have this Euro trip planned. 
that I'd been looking forward to for a very long time. And so I graduate officially, barely. I really, 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 really struggled in the end just because of everything going on. And at that time, I'd been getting, you know, blood work done very often because they were regulating or like monitoring what was going on in my blood in relationship to the lithium I was taking because too high of lithium levels can cause permanent kidney kidney damage. And I started to detect some kind of differences and issues in my blood work that hadn't been there before. And I brought it up to a doctor right before I left for Europe. And he said, you know, not a big deal. No biggie. Like in six months, test again. If it's still like an issue, like let me know. And essentially what that was, was the beginning of hypo. And so that was in January, 2017. And then left for Europe and I was with my then partner. And over the course of just a couple of months, like my thyroid went absolutely insane. I gained 30 to 40 pounds. I started losing all my, like a lot of my hair, I ended up losing like probably half my hair, getting extreme joint pain. My mood was even more impacted, which if you've been listening to this story so far is not good because... I already wasn't doing great. And yeah, so my mental and physical health just kind of spiraled together. And it's just so interesting because I look back and that was such a special time in my life in that there's always been this part of me that's able to be like, look for the magic, find the magic in life, like find it. Like I had this mindfulness. I think I also like with my meditation, like having that year or two or, or like a couple years of background, like being able to look for the beauty in life and find it. I was able to do that excuse me, I was able to do that. But at the same time, it was like in conjunction with feeling horrible. And my partner, my ex and I were fighting a lot. I'm having a lot of hard time dealing with things that had happened in our relationship. And me, again, with my depression goggles, just feeling like things in my life had been fucked up that were out of my control. And I was just totally playing the victim or feeling victimized by life. And that's the thing is like sometimes... Yeah, if you want to say you're the victim, you can look at it through a perspective and find, yeah, you are the victim, but it's also never going to serve you. And so I had that mentality and I couldn't shake it. I don't think I realized how much I was doing it at the time either. But yeah, my relationship disintegrated. My health disintegrated. It was both somehow kind of a fun time. At the same time, it was kind of extremely horrible. I was supposed to go for six months. I ended up extending the trip. We break up after six months. That was after like, I think, four years of being together. And I thought I was with the person I was going to marry. So that was wild. But by that point, I had just gotten to this point where I literally couldn't like feel feelings anymore. There's this term I learned about later when I was doing my post back, which made so much sense to me in my abnormal psychology class. I learned about this term called anhedonia which is the inability to feel pleasure, which is often associated with major depression. And that was it. It wasn't like, you know, this whole time I thought depression was being sad. For me, depression is like not feeling pleasure in life. And anything that would normally make you feel good just doesn't make you feel good. And I actually lost the ability to feel anything. Like if someone had said, do you love your family? I would have said, yeah, because like I knew on some level, like I did, or like I was supposed to, but I didn't feel the feeling of love at all. And so that happened with my partner too. I was like, I know that I love you, like I think, but like also I don't think I love you at all. I don't think I love anything or anyone. And I don't think that I can like do this or be with you. And 
I don't know. It was all just very confusing. It was very painful. I was going through a lot of breakdowns. We end up after eight months in Europe, they went home. I stayed and did another couple months and I was going to finish up the year, but I ended up being in such a low, dark place that I cut my trip home early and came home in November, I believe. And yeah. And then I enter a period of like genuinely, truly not wanting to be alive and really considering not being on the planet anymore. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't about the breakup. It, it wasn't, it was about like, I felt like life had no point. I felt like, you know, I had made this commitment to live, to be grateful, to wake up in the morning. And I didn't feel that at all. I thought about dying all of the time. I wanted it. I would wake up in the morning and be like upset that I woke up. It was extremely painful. Like, I think if you've been there before, you can understand it. And if you haven't, like, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. It was an extremely horrible time. But something beautiful happened during that time. And when I look back, I even like how much it's painful. Like, I don't look back and think of it as like, oh, look at that trauma. I look back and I say, wow, look at that. Look at the path that led me here, you know? But like in the moment, I was not thinking like that. I felt like my 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 life was over. I felt like I hated my life. I don't know if I hated myself, but I think I sometimes hated myself. I think I hated it all. I felt like I was in so much pain. I was in so much suffering. I was scared. I was numb but I was also angry and I was also feeling so alone and in so much despair yeah and I was sitting on my parents couch the same day I actually received my first job offer for like a big girl job after college I was also suicidal that day it's like a very stark juxtaposition that I still remember to this day and I was sitting on this couch at my parents house I'd gone back to their home for the holidays after my big trip in Europe and Asia and I was getting a job and so I'm sitting on that couch and I come across this quote that completely changes my life and it's a roomy quote and it says live life as if everything is rigged in your favor live life as if everything is rigged in your favor Honestly, when I first, very first read it, I had so much resistance to that. I was in so much pain and suffering, genuinely, that I was like, there's literally no way. There's no way this is rigged in my favor. Like, this, this couldn't be rigged. But then there was like this kind of stirring in my gut, maybe, that was essentially like, but what if? What if? this is rigged in your favor? What if this is rigged in our favor? And we just don't have the ability to see how yet. What if there's a future version of Mackenzie who will look back at you in complete suffering and darkness on this couch and see that it was rigged and that it was supposed to happen like this and that it was going to lead me essentially to where I needed to go or to become who I needed to become? And that was my lifeline at the time. Like I literally clung to that with my whole self, my whole might, my whole everything, because I was 
absolutely drowning. And I didn't know which way it was up and I didn't know what to do. And that became that became my lifeline. And so I come out of this period of being suicidal and I don't like actively think about killing myself anymore. But I enter like a very hard year and I'm back on my same bullshit, not in the good way of a ton of weed and a ton of alcohol and of isolation, like all of that. I the, having a job was really weird during this time because like in college, I could just skip classes and then just still need to get the grades and you're good. But at the job, you actually have to like show up and be at the meetings and do the things, hit the KPIs. And the funny thing is like, I actually, as in a sales job, an outside sales job, and I could hit the KPIs. Like I could do the job doing one tenth of what else everyone else was doing. I was above plan. My salesman, basically you have to like sell a certain amount. Like I was per, like 30, a third above my plan of what I need to hit. But I had so such a hard time like getting to my meetings. And I was put on some kind of like warning thing at some point because I was late to my meetings and I was like in danger of being fired. I was late to my meetings. I couldn't, I didn't share this because I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't want to look weak and I had shame about it, but I didn't want to say this is what's going on. And I, I was late to my meetings because I couldn't get out of bed. Like I just straight up couldn't. And when people who haven't experienced depression, like I think hear these things, they're like, well, you could get out of bed. You just roll over and get on your feet and stand up and there you go. You're out of bed. It's like, but it's, it's, it's not the same. It's not, that's not the point. The point is that you literally lack so much motivation that it's, it feels impossible. It feels like the hardest thing in the entire world. And so I couldn't get out of bed. And then I'd be like, oh my God, like literally my meeting's starting or whatever. I'm about to be late or I was late and I would get to the meeting and I would usually get in trouble. It's first like a few times until I got put on some kind of warning thing and danger of being fired. And then I would do the meeting and I was in outside sales. So then I would normally go into the field and visit clients and our partners and sell. But a lot of the time I would just go home and I would get right back in bed and I would just lay there the rest of the day or sleep. And like, I don't even think I watched TV. Like I would just lay there and stare at the wall for the whole day and then go to bed at night and wake up and do it again. Like I was depressed to the point where if you've experienced this, you've, you get it. And if you haven't, I think it paints a really good picture when you have to go pee and you're laying in bed and you have to go pee so bad, but you like just can't get up and you won't get up. And so I would lay there for hours, like having to pee, but I just was like, I can't out of bed. And finally, right on the verge of like peeing my pants, I would get out of bed and go pee. Like that's the state I was in. I was not doing well. And it was also a pivotal time because with that Rumi quote, I was like choosing to play this what if game, which is something I now use with my clients, which is like, if you don't believe it, just play what if. So I was playing what if this is rigged in my favor. And so if it was, I was like, okay, well, thus far. I have done everything people have told me to do. I've done the therapy and the psychiatry and the medications and nothing's helped. Like I am still so depressed and so miserable and I hate my life and I hate being alive and I don't know what to do. And so I was on Reddit Googling things like, what do I do? <laughs> like what kind of 
what kind of like remedies or medications can I do? I was seeing things like ayahuasca and I really thought that that could be helpful. Like there was a piece of me from the very first moment I learned about ayahuasca, probably in 2015-ish, where I was like, that's something that's going to be a part of my life. But I was too scared to pursue it because I was told that that would, you know, basically ruin my whole life because it was a stupid decision to make because it would make me like have psychosis or something, you know? And so like I'm on Reddit, I'm trying to figure out like, can I microdose Adderall? Like all this crazy stuff that I'm reading to try to manage my bipolar depression. And because the thing is, is like I'm taking medication all of these years. And yes, I didn't go back into another manic episode, which is supposedly what the lithium does. It puts like what they call a ceiling. So like it was capping my mood from getting too high. But it was not stopping me from bottoming out. I was, yeah, I'd have like what was called like lithium hangovers. I would feel bad. I was muted. I was like kind of a shell of myself. I was gaining weight. I was so inflamed and I was so depressed. And I was like, I did everything these people told me to do. And I still feel like this. Like, okay, I get it. No one's coming to save me. And what does that mean? That means I need to save myself. So I decided I'm going to do what I do best, which is lean into learning, lean into education. And so I started educating myself around mental health, mental disorders, brain health. And what I started uncovering, especially through podcasts and through medical research and published um, research in medical journals and things like that, peer-reviewed studies, all of it, you know, I started learning about what inflammation was. And I started learning about gut health and how that affects the brain and the gut-brain barrier and about nutrition and proper nutrition and like anti-inflammatory diets and eating whole foods and superfoods. And yeah, I started leaning into this. So like Dave Asprey of uh, Bulletproof Radio, or maybe it's superhuman now, um, huge help in my in my healing and like recovery journey. Uh, Dave Asprey, Luke Story was really helpful with like biohacking and health stuff, alternative, kind of like more woo out there stuff. Rich Roll. I was discovering a lot of amazing people on Rich Roll. I discovered Zach Bush, which really, really helped me go into gut health and the microbiome and how the inflammation in my brain and body and the dysbiosis in my gut was probably a huge contributor to all of my mental health issues and my physical health issues. And I just started like going deep and going in. And at the same time, I was bringing back my spiritual practice in a real way where I was like, okay, I'm committing to healing. And for me, that looked like a physical health journey. I'm going to heal my brain, heal my body. And in that process, my, my spiritual studies and my spiritual practices came back as well, because I also was reading all the research of like, what meditation does to grow gray matter in your brain and all that. And I was like, my brain is precious. And I think my brain is not doing well, apparently, from what's been going on the last couple of years slash my whole life. And I need to care about my brain more than I ever have before, learn about it and try to fix it. This is also when I discovered Dr. Amen. And yeah, so I went down this journey that ended up being a multiple year journey 
and the biggest like healing escapade of my life. And at this time, I also started learning about kind of more out there stuff, astrology stuff, shamanism, indigenous and ancient wisdom in general, esoteric stuff. It kind of all started to weave together. And yeah, so 2018 was like the jumping off point. And then 19, I, oh, and like supplementation was a big factor. A lot of things, a lot of psychological tools as well. I was going to therapy and like none of my therapists really throughout my life, like really helped me. So I felt like I was, I had kind of through that, like done my own stuff and learned how to kind of like therapist with myself, which maybe I'll get backlash for saying that, but I basically like learned how to coach myself. And yeah, so it set me off on this like deep dive into I'm going to fix my health. And then the next year I went because I knew I still wasn't good, but I was all, I had set myself on the right track. I, yeah, I was in a job that I hated. I was in sales and I hated it. And then I was having meltdowns around like what I was supposed to do with my life and what I, I just wasn't feeling great, but I was I was what I call in the, I went from barely surviving and then I started the striving phase. And the striving phase is when you're putting an effort, trying to make a change. You're learning, you're educating, you're trying things out, you're implementing. You don't feel great yet or you're starting to feel better, but you're striving. And so in my striving phase, I then went to an integrative health doctor and she was amazing. And she helped me really, really dial in my diet. She gave me a ton of education around food and diet as well in addition to what I had already been like researching and discovering on my own we did a full extremely extensive health testing blood panels urine panels all of that kind of stuff but actually turned out I had been on this synthetic thyroid hormone for my hypothyroidism and there was zero detectable iodine in my body which meant that even though I was taking this synthetic thyroid hormone I didn't have the iodine in my body, which is necessary to convert it to the form of the basically what I would need to enable it to actually affect my hormone issue, my thyroid issue. Just we we uncovered a lot of stuff like that. And so I actually got some stuff with my thyroid figured out more. I figured out what I should be supplementing with, what I didn't need to be supplementing with, all of that. And I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm discovering Joe Dispenza and understanding the mind-body connection and how the thoughts that we think and how our mind works and basically our consciousness has control over our physiology and our biology and our neurochemical systems, all of these things. I'm all of a sudden realizing like there's this whole freaking world out there of all this stuff that had never been introduced or shown to me. I had no idea it existed. And I was just like uncovering all these pieces on my own and putting together kind of like these systems and protocols for myself. And I could see it start to work. And I started to feel better. And I will add a caveat. There was a piece in 2018 when I went to my psychiatrist. This is, oh, this is the part I want to tell you when I was on Reddit being like, what the fuck do I do? I feel so bad. I feel so bad. And she's like, oh, what if we tried this medication? Which she had never suggested to me before. She was a horrible psychiatrist. Horrible. I'm so bad at her job. She made me feel so uncomfortable all the time too. Weird people skills. Anyways, she was like, let's try this. It's bipolar specific. 
for depression. I think it was like an anti, it's like a, a medication for like schizophrenia or something, but it helped with specifically bipolar depression because basically it seems as though the neurochemistry of my brain doesn't work with a lot of medications such as SSRIs. And so that taking that medication has actually allowed me to come enough out of the pit of thinking about dying all the time and wanting to die to actually have the wherewithal to start to make the changes, which is when I started to educate myself about food and nutrition and movement and exercise and all these things. So I just want to say here, like throughout this whole story, you'll hear how I was highly medicated and I don't think it was the right path and how I ended up like going off of medication and stuff like that, which is what I'm getting to. But I just want to say, I don't shame people who take medication. I think that there's a time and a place for medication. I'm not anti. I just think that the way that we use it needs to be used in a completely different, it needs to be administered in a completely different way. So I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, but basically I started to feel better and I could see my body kind of changing from like less inflammation. And then I read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl in late 2019 or like mid 2019. And through that, I kind of saw, you know, if someone, if you haven't read the book, I really, really recommend it. But this was someone who was in concentration camps in Nazi Germany as a Jew and he made it through. And essentially, one second. So I read Man's Search for Meaning and Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz and went through, you know, pro probably arguably or inarguably one of the most horrendous experiences a human being can go through. And he not only made it through, but he ended up basically building a career studying logotherapy. And in essence, like the title of the book, Man's Search for Meaning, is a, his whole um, work is based upon, it's not about like finding meaning in life. It's about what meaning you bring to life and what meaning your life has. And if you can create and assign and find that meaning for yourself, you can get through anything. And I kind of realized like that's what I had done without realizing it through the Rumi quote, live life as if everything is rigged in your favor, which was that I decided that there was some meaning to what I was going through, even if I didn't know exactly what the meaning was. And so that was kind of like another key, another nugget, another important point in my path that led me forward. And I was still not, you know, doing amazing. But for the first time, I think that was the first year I'd spent not in depression in 10 years. It's like, I think I had a, my first full year, which was a big deal. And it was a really big deal. And yeah, so then... I was at a job finally that I really liked and I felt like I had more alignment in how I was being and my health was kind of being dialed in. And then we went into 2020 and the, and the pandemic happened. And for so many, the pandemic was a really, really hard time, understandably. But for me, it's what I describe as my healing incubator because it basically allowed me to go deep, 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 deep into my healing in a way where, you know, it started in 2018, but you know, in 2018, I was also still eating a lot of Taco Bell and like really in like survival mode. And then I went from survival to thrival 
no, I went from survival mode to then surviving to striving. So 2019 was a lot of striving and learning and doing and implementing and trying, striving, striving, striving. And then 2020, I kind of started to break that threshold of striving to thriving. Like I was deep in my, deep in my Joe Dispenza work. I was doing tons of meditations throughout 2019 and 2020 by Shaman Durek and learning a lot more about shamanism. I discovered Biet Simkin's work. I discovered Bruce Lipton. I was discovered like Lacey Phillips podcast in 2018 or 2019 was just learning a lot more about like more spiritual woo stuff, but also a lot about like energy and energetic stuff. And it just all compounded. So by the time I was in 2020, I was feeling really good. And I was nourishing myself so well. And I was moving my body every day. And I was really had a very firm grasp on what it what was necessary, what inputs were necessary for me to feel good. And I had incorporated things like light therapy, which can be really helpful for mood disorders and bipolar disorder, and was meditating and then doing breath work and then on proper supplementation and then taking things like Shilajit. And, you know, it just was like more and more and more and more. And it started really working. And then I had the chance in 2020 to slow down and say, okay, what do I, what do I want out of life now that I'm not like in survival mode? What do I really want to do? And so even though people were losing their jobs during COVID and had a lot of instability, I actually decided to quit my job to go back to school because I knew that what I was doing, even though I liked it and I'm still really good friends with my boss to this day, and it was a great opportunity for me at the time, it wasn't my like soul's calling. And one thing about me that you will find as we journey together is that I don't stay in places where I am not growing. My orientation towards growth is so strong and so innate within me. And I knew that I wasn't in the situation that was right for my like proper growth and evolution. So I quit my job when lots of people were being laid off and were in like financial insecurity and all of these things. And I decided to go back to school and I couldn't really decide what I wanted to go back for. I was either going to be neuroscience or neuropsychology or clinical psychology. I started nannying at the time because children are one of my greatest loves and passions in life. And I enrolled in a post-bac at Cal studying psychology and counseling services. And I full-time did working and then doing my post-bac, which I finished in one year. You have up until you have up to five years to finish that. And I took the GRE, studied a ton, got the scores I wanted. And then I ended up discovering performance psychology. And I was like, okay, yes, yes, this is it. This is what I want to study. Because what had happened in me was as I traversed my own health journey, and what I initially thought was a physical health journey ended up being physical and mental health journey, and then emotional and then spiritual. And I realized everything is combined and nothing can be separated. And no part of us is an island. 
And so it needs to be this integrative approach. And then I was like, what about performance? The study of performance is so interesting to me because you know what? I don't want to just learn how to strive or like get out of surviving. Like I want to look at, I want to study thriving. Like what does it mean to be the best of the best? What does it mean to be a high performer? What does it mean to maintain high levels of performance at whatever you do? And so I just had this like light bulb moment of like, this is what I need to study. And yeah, so I ended up finding the schools. They're all private schools that I could apply to with this degree on the West Coast and then one in Miami because those are the locations I wanted to be at. And I applied to schools and I'm going to make long story short here because there's a lot of details, but basically I signed on to go to a school in the Bay Area and I end up leaving my job for it to start in fall of 2022. And I'm in the program and I'm loving it. And I'm acing my classes. Like I'm really putting in a lot of effort and doing amazing and proving to myself that like my bad performance in college was really so much due to my mental health and not because I'm dumb or something. Like I was kind of nervous what all of that meant about me, my struggles, you know? And I was really excited because I had decided to take my degree in a specific Um, route, which was for essentially what would be thought of as like kind of like a thesis or capstone project. I was exploring spiritual intelligence and what does the capacity to think about the larger meaning of life and connect to something bigger than yourself, which is kind of the essence of spiritual intelligence. How does that impact emotional intelligence and emotional regulation and motivation and overall performance? And I thought this was such a cool angle and it aligned so much with my path and my passions and all of that. And then I find out right at the end of my first semester that the school has been having issues financially, undisclosed. And at first they say, oh, we're cutting sports programs. We're doing this. We're doing that. And then eventually it comes out like it looks like we're going under, but we're not sure we're going to try to get saved by, you know, another institution to buy us out. Da, 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 da. A few weeks go by, everyone's confused. And in essence, the school closed. And that felt comical in some ways, kind of like a comedy skit from the universe, a little bit of a slap in the face, but I wasn't, for some reason, I wasn't upset. I really felt like That was what was supposed to happen, even though I didn't know why. And I think that was because I've adopted that mindset over the years, ever since I first discovered the live life as if everything is rigged in your favor quote. And that's how I choose to live. I choose to live as though there's a reasoning to something that I won't yet understand. Kind of like the Steve Jobs quote of you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. So I just knew that there was a reason it was happening, even though I didn't know what it was. And I was going to just roll with the punches. So essentially, I had just finished a one-year coaching certification in holistic health coaching through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And I had just had my first clients and I decided to lean in and essentially try to build the company I wanted to build post master's program and see if I could do that in some type of way without the degree. 
because one of the reasons the degree has like small schools are struggling I've since learned is that a lot less people are enrolling in college right now because you don't actually need it in many ways. I'm not saying this as a huge blanket statement, but in many ways you can use the internet and you can use mentorship and you can use all of these other ways to kind of create what you would want without the full degree. And I already have a degree in biology. Like I have a substantial degree in STEM showing what I know and what I care about and the post back in psych. So I was like, you know what? I think I can at least try to build something that is similar to what I wanted to do before, which is around mental skills, mindset, performance, but like life as performance and holistic performance. And so I've spent the last year as an entrepreneur, basically taking the last 10 years of my life in health and healing and life (laughs) and creating this coaching consulting business on how to help people increase their confidence and change their mindset and become the best versions of themselves through mental, physical, emotional, spiritual health. It's It's been kind of adapting and ch- changing in some ways throughout the year. But yeah, I help people get to a full and true embodiment and expression of who they are and use this rad form for framework or formula, resilience, authenticity, and being daring in order for people to embody their highest values and their truth and be in radical alignment with who they are, which means that they then can go forward and start the businesses they want to start, which is what some of my clients do, or start the passion projects, or figure out their relationships, or enhance their connection to self or enhance their connection to their spirituality, whatever that looks like. And it's kind of in a revamp in a way right now, but that's what brings us to now, two hours later. This is probably going to be split up into two podcasts, but I do think it's very important. If you're going to be a part of my world, I want you to understand the path that it took to get here. I want you to understand that I'm not like a charlatan in any way, just trying to make money off of people, like a lot of people in the coaching industry. Like, I care so much about integrity and really helping people because I don't want people to be in the same amounts of pain that I was in throughout my journey. And I think that I do hold a lot of tools and skills and perspectives and teachings and wisdom that I can give to others to help them live better lives and live more deep, full, beautiful, meaningful, impactful lives. And so that's what brings us to our greatest performance. Like I'm really interested in life as performance and how can we be the best at being us and how can we make a life that's beautiful? And a lot of my work is relates back to neuroscience and to biology and biophysics and the mind and consciousness and subconscious reprogramming because that's what I did. I reprogrammed my entire subconscious mind to be someone who is healthy, to be someone who's healed, to be someone who is a leader, who is confident, who loves themselves, all of these things. And now I have the opportunity to share what I've learned. And that's what I think we're supposed to do here. We go through lessons in life and we learn things and then we get to help other people not be in that same pickle or that same pain. And I am so deeply devoted to my work and to my 
mission into living my authentic code of uncovering truth, of being the sage, the archetype of the sage, of knowing and uncovering the truth, and to the mastery of self. And in that space of wisdom and wonder, that's where my life lands. That's where my work lands. That's where I operate. And being able to do a podcast where I can help others, guide others, give people more space and ability and tools to master who they are, to master their lives, to manifest, and to conquer their mental game and to unlock inner and outer freedom, all of these things, like that means the world to me. That's what I'm here to do. And so, yeah, like I said in episode one, our greatest performance is an invitation to listeners to step boldly into living as though their life is the greatest performance at all of all, because it is. And to truly for you to unlock your authentic and true greatness, like let this life be the pursuit of your greatness. This is our greatest performance. This is our greatest masterpiece, this life, our greatest adventure. That's how we should treat it. That's what this really is all about. And there's times when I'm like, oh shit, I'm behind because I didn't start my business at age 24 like these other people in there, you know, five years ahead of me, all this stuff. I'm like, wait a second, I'm not behind. I spent those years understanding what it really means to live, understanding what it means to go from being just alive to living to understanding what health really looks like on so many levels to to understanding like i unlocked codes of life during that time that some people will never get to because they won't be in that same darkness and suffering and i'm not saying it's like some kind of competition or something like that but i've landed here today i believe in the perfect timing and i'm here to make an impact in the world and to change the world and to have true influence and it's something that I care deeply about because it's truly coming. I hope you can feel this through my words or if you're watching on a video, like see this and just feel my energy that it matters so much to me to be in the highest integrity possible because that's how I operate in all ways of my life. I don't have the ability to make money or do anything shady at the expense of other people. Like it's just not in me. I have this earnestness, this this authenticity vein that runs true for me, which is to be real and to be good to the best of my ability. And yes, I also can be very fun and silly and lighthearted. But like right now in this moment, I want you to know how much I care and that I will do everything in my power to answer questions that you have for me, to build a community around truth and love and expansion and adventure and being a masterpiece and this life as our greatest performance and conquering reality. There's this line I love that the best drug of all is conquering raw reality. Like, yeah, let's do that. Let's take that drug together. Let's do that together. I am so excited to build out this project of this show and whatever else comes my way, my dreams are huge. And my wish is to involve myself and to be around other people who dream in such a 
big way as well because it feels very supportive to my heart and to my spirit. And I love to support others. And I love to see how in collaboration with each other and in community and in that vein of an energy of connection, you know, how powerful we are and how much synergy there is and how how beautiful this life experience can be. So thank you for listening to my story. And I hope it gives you insight into who I am and why this show exists and what I'm here to do. And, you know, as this expands, I'll share more about kind of like my vision for the future of this show, for my clients and customers, for the earth, (laughs) for the new earth. But at the base of it all is everything is energetic. And when we can do the energy work, which is physical healing, mental healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, when we understand the laws of the universe and how this world actually works and that there's so much that's I call invisible, but like the energy stuff, the metaphysical stuff that ancient civilizations and indigenous peoples and all this, like, you know, they had figured out and we somehow have dropped it to the wayside. And now it's a time to pick it back up and rediscover it and reintegrate it into our lives. That's where we're at right now. We're at a very beautiful time. We're at a precipice and a turning point in humanity. And I'm here to be a leader, but I'm also here to surround myself with other leaders and to empower other leaders because we all have a part to play. And as I'll always say, I'm no better than anyone else, but I'm also no worse. And I'm here with this mission to help people live better, be better, be more themselves, have more meaning in their life. Because that's what my whole life story is. It's like when I was little, I thought you had to find the meaning of life. And now I've realized there's no inherent meaning in life. And that's amazing. That fact is amazing because that means that life is as meaningful as we allow it to be. Life is as meaningful as the meaning we ascribe to what we go through. Life is as meaningful as what we ascribe. So if we give things deep meaning, we allow them to be meaningful. And that's our job to create meaning from what we go through and allow it to be something that we grow through. And to hold the vein that things are not happening to us. Things are happening for us. And we can ask the question instead, not why is this happening to me, but why did I choose this? Why did my higher self or for some reason, like something was orchestrated where this is happening on purpose? I'm playing the what if game here, right? Because we don't really know, but this is what I think I know. How is this happening for me? Why did I choose this? Was this teaching me? Where is the lesson? And what meaning can I draw from whatever's happening in my life? What meaning can I give to what's going on? And right now, the meaning I will give this experience of being here with you on this podcast right now is we are having the ability to connect to like-minded people, to people who are going to be leaders in the present and future, in the new earth, in this new way of being, in ushering a time, ushering, ushering in a time of higher consciousness, higher awareness, higher frequency. We're on that boat together. There's no coincidences, you guys. There's no coincidence that we're sitting here today, together today, right now, in whatever headphones or speaker you're listening to this, like there are no coincidences. So again, once again, thank you so much for being here. I honor you. I cherish your soul. I hope that I get to connect with you and meet you. Please, after any interaction with me on the digital, in any digital capacity or listening to this, like, please send me a message. 
please let me know who you are and what you're all about. And if any of this impacted you or helped you, if you have any questions I could answer about anything, I'm here and I want to connect and I want to help. And so thank you for listening to the background of what's brought me here to this point in time, to this point in life, to being who I am and kind of how what I went through shaped me into how I am and how I show up. And if you're feeling a connection, I'm excited because I love meeting soul aligned people in my life. And I love knowing that I can use my story and words to embrace others and make them feel less alone and more seen and more understood and more hopeful and all those good things. So thank you for your time and your energy. I hope you have a beautiful day and lots and lots of love. Bless your life. Phew. Okay. That was kind of wild putting out my entire life story in that type of way. I appreciate you receiving it. And I hope that it helps someone or touches someone or just provides insight into who I am and what I'm all about, because I really want to make sure that I'm coming across um, in a very, very authentic way. And so, yeah, thank you for being here. As always, if you uh, are touched by the, the message or have a perspective shift or anything along those lines, I would love to hear from you after you listen. To stay up to date, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are so inclined to leave up to a five-star rating and review, that would mean the world to me. Um, Screenshot and share the show or send the episode to your friends and family. That really helps the show a lot. And I have a freebie offer for you as well. Same thing as last week. If you rate and review the show and send me a screenshot of it, I will schedule you a audit with me and we can go over an area of your life that you would like some work on and we can really dial it in. I love to dial in morning routines with people, but I also really am quite into helping people with career shifts or helping their relationships. It's kind of a widespread net um, of life in general. Life is performance. So if you're willing to leave a rating and review, I would love to do a 15-minute audit with you. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. I so appreciate you listening and I'm sending you love to wherever you are in the world. Till next time.